Oh, good morning. Uh, I thought we were going to have an extended stretch break there for a second. Um, yeah. Hey, if you will, let's uh, just take some time to pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for this morning. Uh, God, we thank you for this opportunity to be able to gather together and to open your word. Uh, God, we pray that it would be your spirit that would uh, instruct our hearts and our lives uh, this morning. Uh, God, we uh, just want to take a second here, and we, we, we want to just pray for uh, our coworkers, uh, our neighbors, our classmates, uh, God, those that uh, you've put around us that, uh, that don't know you, that aren't walking with you. And so, God, we just ask that this morning that you would just touch their life, God, that you would bless them, that you would bless their families, uh, God, that you would bless our interactions with them, that as we uh, see them, as we interact with them, that our words and our conduct uh, would be in a reflection of your goodness and your grace. Uh, God, we pray that you would uh, just walk before us in those conversations. God, give us boldness and courage to share our faith and to cast light on the goodness of the cross. Lord, we want to be uh, people uh, in the church, uh, but God, we want to be a people in the world. Uh, we want to be a people that uh, demonstrates your love uh, so that when they look, uh, they may see brokenness and they may mis see mistakes and failures even, uh, but God, that they would see your love, and your grace. And so we just pray that you would just uh, be with them and that you would draw them to yourself. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, one of probably the most uh, influential conservative theologians of the 20th century. Uh, this man was brilliant, and that really is a bit of an understatement. He graduated summa, uh, summa cum laude from the University of Berlin in 1927 with a doctorate in theology, uh, which really was a, a quite stunning feat considering that he was just at the age of 21. He took up the cause of conservative theology and he battled for the church to embrace a relative faith that impacted the world. The goal was to change the world for Christ. Uh, he would later travel to New York for further studies, and then he took a church in London due to unrest in Germany. He began writing and published a variety of works on theology in the church. He decided that his calling was to assist ministers in Germany. He began to teach at a German seminary, which was later closed by the Nazis. He then secretly traveled from village to village training ministers. The man would eventually return to the United States as a guest scholar at Union Theological Seminary in New York. But again, he began to feel the need to return uh, to help his fellow countrymen that were under Nazi rule. He returned to discover that at the time his brother was assisting a group that was trying to overthrow Hitler. He would soon be arrested for his association and assistance 
that were that was involved with those that were involved in the Operation Valkyrie. While in prison, he continued to write and to teach, and he would be executed a mere three weeks before Berlin was liberated. Today, his writings are considered classics by many who uh, have, you know, it's, it's like required reading in a lot of conservative theologies. Maybe you know who I'm talking about. Does anybody know who this is? Yeah, it is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, made a lot of sacrifices. And if you've read any of his books, and if you've read a little bit about his story, uh, he had many opportunities to sort of stay in the U.S. and to continue, continue to teach and to uh, bring, uh, you know, not just teaching, but discipleship to teachers and ministers. Uh, but the Lord called him and called him back to Germany and ultimately to a sacrifice, a sacrifice that if you're familiar with the story, a lot of us would consider one of the great sacrifices of his generation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, he said, when Christ calls someone, he bids them come and die. You know, there's a lot of stories about great sacrifice. Uh, maybe some that you've read and you've heard about. Uh, when we think about this idea of sacrifice, we think about uh, some of these great stories, right? And, and a lot of them are kind of in times of war. They're, they're military sacrifices. It's people that are laying down literally their life for the sake of their fellow soldiers or for their country. And, and it is this monumentous example of sacrifice that we see all the time. And even within our Christian faith, we think of people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who sacrificed their life for the sake of not just the, the military or the country, but for the sake of the gospel. Uh, there are books filled with stories of martyrs who have laid down their lives. And we read these stories and we think, wow, what great sacrifice that they made, that they were willing to lay down their life for others. But there's other types of sacrifices as well. And we, we even think about maybe those who uh, aren't necessarily people that give up their life, but they're people that are uh, around the world that are living out their faith, sharing the gospel in places that are hostile to the word of God, that are hostile to the message of Jesus Christ. And there are great sacrifices that are being taking place where their, uh, you know, their safety and their rights are being oppressed, that are being sort of challenged. And it's a sacrifice that God has called them to and that they're making. Uh, maybe even a little bit more localized, there are sacrifices that people make here. Uh, there are sacrifices in our country where sometimes people have to decide whether or not they're going to speak out and speak up for their faith in Jesus Christ. And there is a little bit of a sacrifice that comes along with that. There are sacrifices that are tied to maybe relationships. Maybe it's a sacrifice within their jobs to speak out and to say, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to be a part of that. It doesn't sort of connect with where my faith is at. And, and there's people all around us that are making sacrifices. But then there are these sort of day-to-day -day life sacrifices that a lot of us make. Maybe we're not making a, a sacrifice to 
put our life on the line and maybe our rights aren't necessarily being suppressed as we sort of gather in an underground church. But there are everyday sacrifices that we make. And yet sometimes I think that the difference in sacrifices becomes sort of this game of comparison, right? If we look at somebody like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we think, well, you know, that is great sacrifice. That's exceptional sacrifice. And I just, I don't know if I could ever do something quite like that. And we maybe would even look around at the world around us and some of the sacrifices that people are making in our country and in our day can seem difficult. Like, I don't know if I want to speak up. I don't know if I want to speak out about this. I I don't know if I want to make the sacrifice to share the gospel because of what it might do to my reputation and what it might do to this relationship, what it might do to my job. And so there's these challenges that take place in how we understand what sacrifice really is. And this morning, I want to ask this question for all of us, is what sacrifices are you willing to make? What sacrifices are you making for the cause of Christ? Because sometimes we just sort of think in this sort of this uh, scale of, you know, giving up our lives and living in persecution. But then when it comes to the everyday parts of our life, the sacrifices that we're called to make, those things seem so big and so hard and so difficult that sometimes we're unwilling to do it. See, the real test of comparison when it comes to sacrifice is not how our sacrifices compare to other people, but how does our sacrifice compare to the sacrifice that Christ made? And so this morning, that's what I want to talk with you a little bit about, is that Christ modeled and gave this act of sacrifice when he went to the cross, when he died on the cross for our sins. But it wasn't just this act of redemption. It was actually a model of discipleship that he demands those who follow him to mimic, to imitate. And so really the comparison is, is how does my level of sacrifice compare to the sacrifice that Christ has called me to? Because we acknowledge that that sacrifice is going to be different for everybody. That it's going to look different. And so the question is, is not, am I sacrificing more than the person that's sitting next to me? But am I sacrificing what Christ has called me to sacrifice? And I'll sort of let you in on kind of the point of this whole time together this morning is this. Is that when we sacrifice that which God has called us to sacrifice, then he is glorified. And that glory is exactly the same. No matter what the level of sacrifice is, whether that be death, Or whether that be, I'm going to sacrifice my time to spend it in prayer and reading his word. If it is what God has called us to, God is glorified when that sacrifice is made. And Jesus sort of illustrates and I think teaches about sacrifice as he talks about and predicts his own death. And so if you have your Bibles, you can follow along and open with me in John chapter 12. We're going to continue on in John. Let me just give you a quick setup again where we were at uh, previously in the first part of John. uh, We saw the triumphal entry. And that's what we talked about the last time that I had a chance to share with you in looking at Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. 
And, and now Jesus is moving towards his crucifixion. He knows what's happening. He knows what's coming. And uh, some of the other gospels talk about uh, the clearing or the cleansing of the temple. And that account is not here in John. And so we have this next part that is going to be that John is going to be talking about here where he's answering a question that leads him in to predict his own death. I think it's interesting in this. Uh, I, hopefully you're enjoying the current series that Pastor Paul is going through in Nehemiah. Amen. It's been good. And uh, one of the things that Pastor Paul's been talking about and we've seen in the book of Nehemiah is how God gives both the authority and the provision for Nehemiah to carry out the will and work that God has given him, right? And so God has, through the king, given the authority, and he has also provided the resources. He's provided all that Nehemiah needs to rebuild this wall. And what's interesting to me is that we actually see a very similar thing in this passage with Jesus. That even in, with the life of Jesus, we see that there is authority that comes from the Father and provision in this sacrifice, provision in the task at hand. And so I think these two things connect well, and I think we'll be able to see that a little bit. But he goes through, and in this text, we're going to sort of see some answers to a couple of questions about what sacrifice is. And so a lot of times we think just specifically about the sacrifice of Christ. But I, I want to sort of apply it to our lives and look at, as we think about the sacrifice of Christ, what does it mean about sacrifice for you and I? Does it mean that we need to go to some third world country and live under persecution and run an underground church? Or does sacrifice apply to our lives today? And so we'll look at it together. John chapter 12, starting verse 20, if you want to follow along with me. Here's what the word of God says. Now, some Greeks were among those who had gone up to worship at the feast. So these approached Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and they both went and told Jesus. Now, I'm going to stop here. And I'm going to sort of take some time because we haven't even really gotten into the part where Jesus talks about his death. And yet, I think that there is a principle about sacrifice right here. And it kind of answers this question, is why is there a need for sacrifice? Now, you may feel like that's a little bit redundant, but is there actually a need for sacrifice? Now, we're not just talking about a willingness to do nice things or good things for people. We're not just talking about sharing the gospel, but... Is there a call? Is there a need for us to actually give something up for the sake of the gospel? And I think one of the interesting points here is that sacrifice will always bring life. It will always bring about life. Now, when we think about it on grand scales, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? We see that there are some sacrifices where there is literally the preservation of life because of someone giving up their own life. And yet, we understand that even in the smallest sacrifices, it brings forth life. When you sacrifice, when you make sacrifices in your life, you are breathing life, spiritual life, into the circumstances that you're focusing on. Now, it's interesting here because the illustration of life is specific to the Greeks, 
Why, why is this in here? You know, the Greeks are kind of hearing these verses, and then it just disappears. We, we don't really hear any more about this group that was seeking Jesus. We don't see a conversation that takes place between them. You know, Jesus kind of goes off and uh, starts talking about his death. So why is this here? It is a reminder for us that, that Jesus' sacrifice was for the entire world. Amen? It wasn't just for the Jewish people. It, it wasn't just for the nation of Israel. It was for the entire world. When the Greeks enter in, they sort of trigger this aspect that the gospel has gone beyond the Jewish nation and is for the entire world. The Greeks were God-fearing Gentiles who were coming for the feasts. Uh, they, they would come and they would participate in the feasts and they would have to stay outside in the court of Gentiles. But they were there because they believed in God. They believed in the Jewish Yahweh. And so they were seeking. They wanted to understand who Jesus was. They had probably heard about him either through the triumphal entry or through the resurrection of Lazarus that happened in chapter 11. And so they're coming and they're seeking but there is a theological symbolism that they represent, and that is the scattered children of God that God is start, that Jesus is starting to draw together, that He's starting to bring together. And that's ultimately what Jesus is about, right? Is drawing his people together into common faith and unity. John focuses on this throughout his entire book. He presents Jesus as the Savior of the world over and over and over. Let me sort of put this up and you can kind of look through this, but these are just a few examples. John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son. John 4.42, We know that this indeed was... It, I'm sorry, for we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. John 6, 33, the bread, referring to Jesus, gives life to the world. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. These are Jesus' very own words. John is focusing, he wants his readers to understand that Jesus came not just for the 12, not just for a nation, but he came for the world. Well, why is that important? Why, why does that matter? How does that matter for sacrifice? Because people have a need. People have a born into need to see and to know Jesus. Because we are born into sin, because we are born into a sin nature, we have an, an immediate need from the moment that we take our first breath to know Jesus, to see Jesus, to experience his redemption, and his salvation. People need to see Jesus. The Greeks needed to see Jesus. There's two aspects to this, I think. There's two different things that are kind of met needs here. One is we need to see Jesus in his cause. We need to see Jesus for who he is, for what he was about when he was here on earth. See, Jesus was a great humanitarian, but that was not his cause. Jesus was a great debater, but that was not his cause. Jesus was even a great leader and teacher, but that was not his cause. His cause was Calvary. His cause was sacrifice. It was to glorify his father 
through sacrifice. But there's another thing that people need to see. It's not just the cause of Christ and who he is and why he came, but people also need to see our own condition. When we talk about our own condition, what we're talking about is kind of three different parts. One is our sin. It's what we're born into. Psalm 51, 1 through 2 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. People need to see the fact that they're sinners, that they are in need of being saved because they've been separated from God through sin. But also, we need to see, be seen in our sorrows. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one who from men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus knew and he would experience great sorrow just like you and I. Maybe you've experienced sorrow in your life. The depth of grief. It is part of our need. There's a third part of our need too, though, and it is our brokenness. Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed spirit. See, does that make sense? Part of why there is sacrifice is because people need to see Jesus. They need to see him for who he is as the son of God, the perfect living sacrifice. And they need to see their own need for this savior, the condition of our own hearts, the sin, the sorrow, the brokenness. And when we're able to show that, that sort of you know, parallel, when we're able to, to model for people who Christ is and our need for Christ, then people are drawn to him. And listen, there is no greater demonstration of these truths than self-sacrifice. That when we sacrifice in front of a world that doesn't know and doesn't understand the gospel, then what they begin to see is they begin to see a God of goodness and grace that meets the needs of our sin and our sorrow and our brokenness. We can say words all day long, but when we sacrifice for others, it puts on display everything that people are looking for, everything that people need to see. Amen? There was a young preacher who went to a new church as a pastor, and he thought that the people wanted to hear intellectual preaching. Is everybody good? Should we have some prayer? Or? I don't know what happened over here. Um, he thought that people just wanted to hear intellectual preaching, and so he filled his sermons with those things. His church's attendance, though, began to fall off, and the young people left the church. And then one day, when he came to the pulpit, he found a card with these words, We would see Jesus written on it. He was angry at first, but soon he began to realize that he had been giving his people the wrong messages. He promised the Lord that from that time on, he would preach Christ and him crucified. And as he did this, his congregation began to grow. 
and the young people return to the church. Christ crucified. See, the message that's preached, the, the crux, the pinnacle, the climax of our faith is about sacrifice. And so in this text, then, we move on. And it answers maybe a second question. And that is, where does sacrifice come from? Like, why? If, if we know that sacrifice needs to be part of it, then, then how does it happen? How do we generate a lifestyle, an attitude, an approach of sacrifice? Well, sacrifice comes from fellowship. It's kind of an interesting word, but it is a word. But it is this idea of it comes from imitation. It comes from following Christ. And Jesus said it himself. Look in verse 23. Jesus continues. He says, it says, Jesus replied, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the solemn truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. The one who loves his life destroys it. And the one who hates his life in this world guards it for eternal life. If anyone wants to serve me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be too. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So it's interesting now, the Greeks have asked to see Jesus. And Jesus becomes aware of this, right? Because Philip goes to Andrew and Andrew tells Jesus this. But we don't see a conversation between Jesus and the Greeks. Jesus begins to talk about what it means to see Jesus. He begins to teach about what it means to see Christ. And it's interesting here that the model, the example, the teaching here is to serve in the manner that Jesus serves. To follow his example. To do as he did and does. Jesus shares a parable, and it's a specific parable about the law of the kingdom. And simply put, the law of the kingdom is that death equals life. That when we die, he uses this illustration of a seed, that when we die to ourselves, that it bears fruit. That when Jesus died on the cross, it bared redemption for you and I. Jesus' sacrifice brings life for others. The call to sacrifice for the disciples brings life to themselves. It isn't the first time that Jesus has laid out this call of sacrifice, right? We've heard other passages where Jesus calls for us to pick up our cross and to carry it daily. But this time, he does it with a promise that the Father will honor the one who serves Christ. This promise has two different aspects. One is it shows the unity of purpose, that there is a common faith that it draws us to. And secondly, it sheds light in our future in heaven, that we will one day be with Christ in heaven. I think it's interesting here to note that Jesus doesn't say the hour has come for the Son of Man to be crucified. But he says that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I think that that's an interesting note. See, personal sacrifice sees past pain and death to awaiting glory. For you and I, personal sacrifice 
means that we have the ability to see past the inconvenience, to see past the hardship, to see past the loss that might take place, and see the promised glory that God has awaiting. And that glory might be immediate, it might be down the road, or it might be in eternity, but there is glory that comes from sacrifice. Jesus saw the past, or he saw past the cross, the cross to his return to heaven. And Jesus was demonstrating great confidence as he was moving towards the hour. He affirms his complete commitment to the will of God. But at the same time, we see that he struggles with the horror of what it means to die the death of crucifixion. It's illustrated with the seed. The seed is used often throughout scripture to illustrate death and burial and rebirth and growth. It's uh, mentioned over 52 times, over 52 different verses in scripture. And it's this idea of understanding that there is something new, something fresh, something life-giving that awaits when we follow Christ and when we serve him. And not just serve him in the sense of duty, but serve him sacrificially. And here's the thing. I'll just, I think sometimes as a church, we're good at serving. We're good at doing good things. We're do good at sort of getting things done and being part of good goals. But sometimes we have a tendency to stop short when it begins to cost us. Why? Because there's so much good. There's so many ways to be involved. There's so many ways to serve. And so I have figured out a way where I can serve in a way that fits my schedule, that doesn't really hurt, that doesn't really cost me. And so somehow... Somehow, I've divorced serving and sacrifice. Because sacrifice gives something up. It should cost me something. It should hurt a little bit in some way. And without sacrifice, then I miss out. I enjoy the blessings that come from service, but I miss out on the fact that sacrifice brings beauty and bounty it brings out of something that is, that's difficult, that's hard, that's painful, something that is beautiful. And if you've been through that, you know that the beauty on that side far exceeds anything else because there was a brokenness that you had to penetrate to get to that place. Amen? Amen. And there's... There is bounty with that. This is, not, this is not prosperity gospel, but this is the fruitfulness of the Christian life. That in sacrifice, we bear fruit. We exhibit the, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. These things come genuinely out of a place of sacrifice. I can be joyful and loving when it's easy, when it's simple. But when it comes out of sacrifice and difficulty, then there is this renewed expression of it. And that is what the world will see and notice. Yeah, they'll notice us being kind and joyful and loving when things are good, when things are easy. But when there's sacrifice, that's when it sticks out. I think that's when people start to pay attention. There's a history professor 
at a state university who's a Christian, and he would go down to a local nursing home and he would visit the elderly men and women there on a weekly basis. Um, though some of them had uh, you know, family that would come and visit them, a lot of them were sent there because uh, basically their family just sort of wanted to dump them off so they wouldn't have to bother with them. And it was really sad, and they were uh, very lonely and sad people. And so he would go, and he would visit them, and he would spend time with them. And so one day after the professor had made his weekly home visit to the elderly people, uh, one of his students came and stopped him and told him how wonderful it was that he had the love and the gift for that sort of thing. Right? You can kind of hear him say that. And the professor was sort of taken back by this compliment. And he said, a love for it, a gift for it, do you think that I really enjoy smelling urine, stepping over bedpans, or talking with someone who drifts off into senile daydreams in the middle of a sentence? You think I enjoy it? You've got to be kidding. And so now the student was sort of stunned by this response. And he said, well, then why do you go there every week? And the professor answered, because that's where Christ would be. That is what Christ would do. And I am a follower of Christ. See, ministry is messy. People are messy. People are broken. But hear this. We need to understand that the primary point of impact of the gospel is in the midst of mess and pain. Not a solution, not just as a solution, but as a comfort and a hope. Not necessarily as an immediate resolve, but as a place of understanding and ultimately salvation. Jesus echoes an important truth that many seem to forget. And that is that when God sent his son, he gave the very best. The very best. God gave up his highest prize, his greatest gift. The sacrifice of Jesus opened the door for us to experience salvation. You know, ask any mother, any mother of a newborn to even consider giving up their child. Because it is the very best that they have. It is a sacrifice that carries great weight. The gruesome death carried out on the cross allows us to experience the grace of Christ. Jesus makes something else clear as well. The truth is that he was going to be glorified. The concept of glorification is one of great honor, of being raised up and placed on a higher level. Uh, it's an idea similar to like in sports when we see uh, a player that is lifted up onto the shoulders of their teammates and carried off. Being glorified means that the person experiences an extreme honor. This would have been a kind of honor given to a king. Jesus was gaining his glory through submission to God's will and to the shedding of his divine blood. That's the glorification. The absolute nature of God's grace is poured into the glory of a Roman cross. There is no other act in history that defines God's love, reveals the depth of his mercy, and shows the desire of God to save us as the cross. 
The cross stood at the center of Christ's future. But how often, how often do we ignore the cross in our daily lives? How often do we take the nature of his grace for granted? I'm reminded of a story by, about C.R. Smith. C.R. Smith was one of the founders of American Airlines. And so one time he was flying, and he made a stopover in Nashville, Tennessee. And when he did, he found two deaths at American Airlines, and the, sort of in the corridor of the airport. And on one, the phone was just ringing and ringing and ringing. And of course, you've probably seen something similar to this. Sitting at the other desk, with his feet propped up, was a man reading the newspaper. And so Smith, again, the founder of American Airlines, walks over to him and says, Your phone is ringing. And he said, well, that's reservations. I'm maintenance. (laughs) Furious, Smith walked over to the desk. He picked up the phone. He began talking to a man who urgently needed to be able to get to California. Smith rattled off the schedule from memory to the man and hung up. And the man from maintenance couldn't believe it. He said, say, that was was pretty good. Do you work for American? (laughs) He said, yes, I do. And he said, and you used to. You know, it's important for us to learn what to take seriously, but maybe more importantly, who to take seriously. We do not want to be a people. We do not want to be a church that sits at the desk reading a newspaper while the phone next to us is ringing. It may be out of our comfort zone. It might be a different department It might be somebody else's responsibility, somebody who's more qualified, somebody who has more gifting, and yet God calls us to sacrifice. He doesn't call us to easy service. He calls us to sacrifice. Well, the last part of this passage that we're looking at today answers, kind of gives us two answers to one last question, and that is, Why should we embrace sacrifice? Why should we embrace it? Not just look for it, not just participate in it, but why should we embrace it? Why should we desire it in our lives? Let's read on here in verse 27. Jesus is still speaking. He says, now my soul is greatly distressed. And what should I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. No, but for this very reason, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then listen to this. Then a voice from heaven came and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard the voice. The crowd that stood there and heard the voice said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice has not come for my benefit, but for yours. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now he said this to indicate clearly what kind of death he was going to die. This is pretty cool because... We see here the glorification of Jesus. We see that sacrifice leads to glory. 
We talk about a lot of times that we do things for the glory of God. But what really brings God glory is an imitation, a fellowship in his example. And his example was a sacrificial example. Jesus was not just a good teacher who taught to do good deeds. He was a loving savior that taught sacrifice, cost, giving up, being willing to submit what you want, what I want, what I think is best, what I want to control for the good and the sake of God, and letting that be a testimony to the world. See, real sacrifice is both genuine anguish and strength of obedience. It's both. It's cost and it's fellowship. I think it's interesting here again, in verse 27, he says that he was greatly distressed. Some versions say that he was in turmoil. I think it's also important to note here that we're not saying, he's not saying, that he was distressed over the will of God, but rather the process of going through God's will. I don't know about you, but for me, that's freeing. Like, it's really encouraging for me to know that we can be firm in our faith as we follow the will of God, but it doesn't mean that we don't admit struggle, that we don't acknowledge distress and even turmoil, that we can acknowledge our pain and our struggle. I think some of us feel like we've not only got to follow the will of God, but we've got to act like giants as we do it. Jesus was in turmoil. He understood the will of God. He embraced the will of God. He was going to fulfill the will of God, but he was in turmoil because he knew what was going to be involved because it was sacrifice. It's in our pain that glory is born. And let me encourage you with this because I think this is important for us is that glorification brings catastrophic change to everything, to everything. If you want to experience catastrophic change in your life, begin to sacrifice in ways that hurt regularly. Right? With regard to Jesus, glorification changed everything right then at the cross. With regard to our lives, it changes everything in our future. Again here, verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the time of judgment. The cross was the inauguration of judgment. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the centralized pivot point of eternity. It is the swing of salvation for those who were long awaiting the promised Messiah as the hope of the world. And then those who would put their faith in Christ for what he has done as the fulfilled Messiah and the hope of the world. In these verses, Jesus himself is giving weight to the eternal magnitude of what is coming, his death. His death changed everything. Listen, if you know Jesus, his death changed everything for you. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted him as your personal savior and allowed him to become Lord of your life, then it has changed everything. 
everything. It has not just changed your eternal destiny, but it changes your life. It changes how you think. It changes your relationships. It changes your approach with the world. It changes how you view the difficult things of the world. It changes how you view the creation of the world. It changes everything. It's catastrophic. The Father speaks. This is pretty amazing. It's really the third time that we see the voice of God show up in the life and ministry of Jesus. Once at his baptism, once at his transfiguration, and here now in his own prediction of his death. And this is what I think is really cool, is that the Father shows both his authority and his provision. He shows and affirms his past life and ministry as well as his future death and suffering. Jesus has the authority of the Father. And in that, he has the provisional comfort through turmoil as he approaches the cross. See, when we know Christ, we come as bearers not just of his authority, but we also come with the provision of of everything that we need to get through it. Sacrifice is hard. Sacrifice costs. But that cost is a trade-off because then we receive everything that we need. And it's when we receive the provision of God that then glory is born. It bears out out of that which has died to self. Jesus gave his life for salvation. What? Do we give in return? Do we give half-hearted commitments with self-centered living? Our nature is human, sinful, it's faulty. We miss the true nature of the cross many times just because we're too focused on ourselves. The truth is that we place ourselves at a higher level of priority than we often do Christ himself. Jesus is calling for radical commitment. Jesus is calling for us to offer him the totality of our lives, not just our Sunday mornings, not just the things that are easy and convenient, but the wholeness of our spirit, the wholeness of our life. Jesus desires it, and he wants it all. Discipleship is a sacrifice of who we are. It's what we desire to experience, the wholeness that comes from knowing Jesus. And this is why sacrifice is so important. is because it leads to glorification. And then ultimately, it leads to salvation. Finish this in verses 34 and 30, through 36. It says, Then the crowd responded, We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus replied, The light is with you for a little longer. Walk while you have light so that the darkness may not overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he went away and hid himself from them. I love this. They they ask this question of like, you know, this sort of theological question of, you know, the Christ is going to remain forever. So what, what does this mean? What do you mean that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And Jesus just says, listen, the time for theological discussion is done. I'm about to die. And so he gives to them this appeal for belief. 
See, the cross is going to reveal those who are opposed to God and those who identify as children of the light. You know, we're so wrapped up into identity these days and trying to sort of figure that out and, you know, trying to like pick your own identity. I'm not sure how that works. But in our spiritual lives, we have a decision to make about our identity. That's actually what the identity crisis really is. It's about who we are in Christ. Do you know Christ? Do you have a relationship with him? Are you walking in the light? Or are you opposed? Because you can't be in darkness and not stand in opposition to the light. This imagery, Jesus says that I'm going to be lifted up. And they're asking, how is the Son of Man going to be lifted up? Jesus is lifted up. He's lifted up physically on the cross. He's lifted up from the earth into the air. He's lifted up to be visible to all. Go back to the beginning of this passage. The Greeks, what what were they there for? We want to see Jesus. And this is Jesus' response, right? Not like, okay, let's have a conversation. We'll get together and have some coffee. But this is Jesus' response. I'm going to make the greatest worldwide sacrifice that you have ever seen. And when I am on that cross, I will be lifted up. And you will see clearly and plainly what the Son of God must do for you. He's lifted up to expose darkness. Why? John chapter 12 says it's to find the way. John chapter 8 says it's to know the truth. And John chapter 3, 14 says it's to receive life. Isn't that it? Sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice leads to our salvation. It's so that through Jesus we can find the way. We can know the truth and we can receive life. That is the gospel. And when we sacrifice, we mimic this. We demonstrate it. We put it on display for others to see. And then they see this Christ through the sacrifice. Our sacrifice leads to seeing Jesus' sacrifice. And that leads to an understanding that allows people to know, people to understand not just what is going on in terms of, of like a formative sense, but it allows people to understand the way, the truth, and the life. See, believing is seeing, but seeing is not always believing. I think I clicked too early for that. Once again, we see confusion. We saw this in the last passage. There's confusion on the part of the audience. Jesus is no longer in a place to discuss theology with them, and so he gives them an appeal to believe. Jesus is the light. And guess what? The light will not remain forever. He was about to depart, and they must choose before it's too late. It's the same for you and I today. That Jesus is the light of the world. That he has come to not just conquer the darkness of our world, but to conquer sin and death. But our time to decide, to make a choice about what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he did on the cross is limited. We don't know how many days, we don't know many how hours we may have in this life. And there will come a point in time when our life will end. And when that happens, your time will be up. My time will be up. And what matters in that moment is what we've decided about the person of Christ. Have we trusted him? Have we put our faith in him as our Lord and Savior? And as believers, we want to live in a way that echoes and reflects that sacrifice. Now, Jesus may not necessarily be expecting each of us to be killed for his kingdom. He might, but maybe not. But he expects something from our lives. Jesus wants us to give 
control of our lives over to him. It's sacrificing, it's surrender, it's servanthood, it's selflessness. Jesus gave his life for our salvation. There would be no resurrection without the cross. There would be no empty tomb without the sacrifice of Calvary. Death brings life. We cannot embrace the new life of Christ until we release the former life to Christ. We must give up what we are, the way we are currently living to go deeper with our walk with Christ. Sacrifice is required in living for Christ. We cannot think that we can live for Jesus without giving, giving something up. All of this, I think, leads to a couple of points of application. What is it that we are called to sacrifice specifically? Well, we're called to sacrifice selfishness. We're called to sacrifice sin, for sure. But we're also called to sacrifice for the will and sake of God for his glory. Let me be really clear what I'm not saying in this. is I'm not saying that you should be doing more. I'm not saying that you should be trying harder. I'm not saying that you should be working harder. I'm not saying that you should you know, try to take on more. I'm not saying that you're not doing enough. What I'm saying is that there are moments in our lives that God calls us to things that are uncomfortable, that he calls us to things that are hard, that are painful. He calls us to give up things. He calls us, men, he calls us to this every day because he says that we are called to love our wives in the way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. It is sacrificial living daily. It means being willing to do the small things that are difficult, the small things that are inconvenient, the small things that you don't feel like doing as a way to demonstrate sacrifice for the person next to you so that when they see your consistent willingness to put others before yourself, even with a cost, they will say, there is a sacrifice that is worth looking into. And they will find in that sacrifice the sacrifice of Christ. And in there, they will find glory and salvation. Sacrifice multiplies impact. Let me see where I'm at now. There's, let me just end with this. I'm going to give you three principles of sacrifice. One is that sacrifice multiplies impact. More is accomplished through our efforts when it is accompanied by sacrifice. Sacrifice is a sign of passion and commitment. Two of the primary ways that we demonstrate sacrifice is time and money. But I want to be really, really clear that our sacrifice is to God. It is not to a person or to a preacher or to a church or to an earthly cause. A sacrifice might be made for a person or for a church or a ministry or cause, but our sacrifice is to God. That's why we sacrifice. Secondly, sacrifice multiplies growth. One seed becomes many seeds through an act of sacrifice. One sacrifice can make a massive impact. Growth regularly multiplies over an extended amount of time. And then thirdly, sacrifice, sacrifice multiplies blessing. Sacrifice has a way of multiplying the blessing in life. Listen, there is no glory without sacrifice. There is no fruitful life without death. There is no victory without surrender. I don't have time to get into it fully, but um, there's a story about a man named Jim Elliott that maybe you've heard. Jim Elliott was a missionary 
who served in Ecuador, him and four others. Uh, God called them there, and they wanted to reach the Alca Indians. And they were a violent group that had killed some other people that had tried to go in and talk to them. And they felt like the Lord was leading them to this. And so they decided to make contact, and they sort of did it over time. Uh, but they decided eventually at one point that they were going to land a plane on the beach and make contact with these people. And they did. And they initially made some contact and gave some gifts with just three of them. And then they left and they told them that they should bring others back. And, and you know, about, I think it was like maybe six days later, they finally came back with some other people. Uh, but if you know the story, uh, they came back and they killed all five missionaries. Jim Elliott uh, being one of those. And they made this tremendous sacrifice. And they gave up their lives. One of the sort of notable features of this story is that they had guns. But they had made a decision ahead of time that they would not take a life of someone who is unsaved to protect their own life if it was needed, if it came to that. And so they gave, really willingly gave and laid down their lives for this group of Alka Indians. And if you know the story as it continues on, you'll know that uh, Jim Elliott's wife and others uh, went back, family, um, one of the pilot's sons went back and later uh, continued to reach the Alka Indians and eventually was able to lead the entire tribe to Christ. And out of that, there was this great glory and there was this great salvation. And I love that because one of my favorite quotes of all time is Jim Elliott who says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And I think that that says well, right? Maybe God isn't calling you to be a missionary to go to some tribal group and potentially give your life. But what sacrifices can you make? Are you making? What sacrifices are we making in order to exalt the sacrifice of Christ and to put on display the great love and the great grace that God has shown us. Let me just close this in prayer and then we'll, we'll finish with the song. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your word. God, we just want to be uh, imitators of you. God, we want to follow you just as you've called us to do. God, there is a call to serve and a call to, uh, to walk with you as you walked. And so, God, we thank you that you give us opportunities to sacrifice, uh, to demonstrate your love, to demonstrate your grace to those around us. God, I pray that in the moments that you call us to sacrifice, when it's difficult, when we're having to give up something that is hard, that you would give us boldness and courage and that you would allow us to see past the cost and to be able to see the glory and the salvation that is in the future that it waits for those who see. And God, first and foremost, we thank you for your greatest demonstration of sacrifice. We thank you for your death on the cross for our sin, your willingness to obey the will of the Father and to go to the cross so that we would not have to. And so, God, we thank you for this grace. We thank you for this love. And God, help us to be a people that loves well and sacrifices often.
for your glory. In Jesus' name.